Dr. Diane Mueller, welcome back to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to another conversation. And we're really excited to have you back again because so much has happened since episode 202, where we first introduced you to our community. And, uh, you know, we, we've had thousands and thousands of downloads, well over 50,000 downloads of your first episode. So I think it was really important now that you've had so many changes in your practice and your practices, I should say, that uh, that we needed to catch up with you again. And uh, before we before we begin that part of the conversation, I do want to share with folks, because remember, this is an audio-only podcast, that one of my favorite people in the world and one of my favorite co-hosts, uh, Michelle McCune, is with us today. And, um, and Michelle, why don't you first introduce yourself to folks again, remind them about, um, you know, at least the episode where we introduced you to the community and uh, talk about some of, the, some of the things that you're doing now, uh, your recent move, and then we'll come back and, uh, and um, introduce Dr. Mueller. Sounds good. Hi, everyone. Excited to be here. My name is Michelle McCune. I specialize in tick-borne infections and environmental toxins. My practice is called the Lyme Specialist, where we look into a lot with not only Lyme disease and co-infections, but also environmental toxins, specifically mold mycotoxins is huge. And, uh, and building biology, all of those logistics. Um, I actually first met Tech, uh, Tick Bootcamp on episode 141. And so we talked a little bit about my story. I've had my own health issues with Lyme disease. I ended up doing hyperthermia treatment. And then I also had a pretty bad uh, mold exposure. So I developed biotoxin illness, SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, and then mast cell activation syndrome. And I've noticed that through the past few years, mast cell has really, um, really became a lot more popular. And unfortunately, we're seeing more and more people develop mast cell. So I've pivoted my practice to, um, to look into that as well and work with a lot of people that are dealing with some pretty uh, complex conditions. Well, thank you, Michelle. So let's first, uh, Dr. Mueller, remind folks that um, we we learned about your creative spirit quite some time ago, right? We're, we're almost at episode 400 here at Tick Bootcamp. And so about 200 episodes ago, episode 202, we learned about you and your creative spirit and all the different places that your creativity takes you. And there, there have been three major changes that we identified, which is what triggered us to uh, invite you back to the podcast. Um, so, uh, but before we talk about the changes that Michelle takes you through, uh, you know, the, 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 the revision of your, your, your business, the uh, creation of My Lime Doc, uh, the the spinoff of a new business, uh, my libido doc, which we're excited to learn about uh, because there are so many folks in this community that are struggling with uh, with um, you know libido issues uh, as a result of Lyme disease. Then of course you've updated your book, right? So we have those three different major topics that that we're going to take you through. But before we do that, on a on a very high level, why don't you first um, so that we're not derivative or repeating what we what we learned in episode two hundred two. Um, why don't you talk about very generally where you're practicing and how you came to, you know, from a personal journey to your now professional journey to the Lyme disease community? Yeah, my my Lyme doc is a practice that is completely tele. So it's it's national, it's international. We are based in Colorado. And my journey, which is kind of perfect for this show that we're not going into it because I've been talking about my journey for many, many years. And it's always a great thing we talk about our journey, right? Like my the high level things that people have heard is there was a moment where I was many, many moments, a long moment, I should say, where I could not walk, where I was having crazy memory loss, forgetting where I lived, those kind of things. And while 
I find that it is so helpful for people that see people that are understanding that I've walked the line, the mold, the chronic illness journey themselves. I feel like it's very important to begin to making, make sure that we're positioning. And my goal is to stop positioning me, you know, as, as like the hero and really to position patients more as the hero, because I've already gone my, you know, through my journey. And so I'm well, it's been an amazing thing. And really the goal is to say, Hey, you guys are all survivors. You guys are all thrivers. You guys are all, you know, really working hard to get on the other side. And you guys are the heroes that I really want to focus on. Okay. So let's talk about your creative spirit a little bit and, uh, and a little bit more about your background. So you have, you have doctorate degrees in, in a number of different areas. So highlight for our folks, uh, again, just, just to give them yeah. context for this podcast, uh, um, how many doctorate degrees you have and, uh, and where you're primarily practicing. Yeah. So I have a doctorate in naturopathic medicine. So I have my naturopathic doctorate, which is four level, four year doctorate degree, similar to MDs focus way more though on herbs, natural medicine, that sort of thing. And then I also have a doctorate of acupuncture and oriental medicine. So that really allows, even though I'm doing tele, I'm not really doing acupuncture anymore. I still draw from some of those theories of Chinese medicine And, and Chinese medicine is so focused on looking at patterns. And so there's like energetic patterns that we see with lime and mold that happen in the body. And that's part of how I draw from that, that area. So for example, liver chi stagnation, everybody talks about detox in Chinese medicine. We talk about liver chi stagnation, for example. So when thinking about prescribing, I also think about that sort of pattern that we see in people in addition to the standard, you know, diagnostic, Hey, it's Lyme, it's Sparta, it's Babesia, whatever it is. We look for both types of say information with formulating treatment plans. All right. So you, we, when we introduced you in the past, we talked about your creative spirit. You're an author, you're an educator, you're a practitioner. Um, you have a, a diverse uh, set of interests in both uh, mindset and in um, and in um, and healing uh, from environmental toxins, from from uh, various forms of microbial challenges. So, why don't you first now introduce to folks, um, you know, the changes that you made in in your practice and uh, and why you started my line doc and how that's different than the way you were practicing when we last uh, spoke with you. Thank you. Yeah, at my line doc, one of the things that I really wanted to focus on truly was just a ability to find the people that need me better. So renaming it to something that was Lyme in the title, you know, just like you, Michelle, where it's like, oh, it's very clear what I do now where I could find more people that really need my work. So that was that was some of it. So another component of it really is bringing it tele. I also have another thing I've added since I am now at my Lyme doc is I have a DIY program. So in the DIY program, it's videos that basically go over any lab tests that people need. And it's it's basically teaching people how to think like a Lyme clinician or doctor. Because I find that there's you know certain people in a large portion of the population that has drained resources. And they're like, I need testing. I need to know what's going on. But they've already spent $70,000. And so I also wanted to formulate something that I could really have for that community. So in my DIY program, it's really just a bunch of videos that are teaching people, how do you know if you need thyroid tests? How do you know if you need adrenal tests? How do you know if you need Lyme tests? And then teaching them through, through video education, 
how to get these tests direct to consumer, what the tests mean, and how to build and think about building their own protocol. So it was another thing I really wanted to add was a way of helping people that really can't get the help because they've drained their bank account and taken out the second mortgage and all of those things. Yeah, that's very interesting. So for people that are in this tick-borne uh, nightmare and then also dealing with biotoxin illness and uh, having a, a whole influx of symptoms, when they're reaching out to you, what's kind of your protocol that that you first look into? Do you have a certain type of um, direction for doing things like first starting with detoxing and then uh, possibly pathogens, you know, opening up drainage pathways? How, how do you start working with clients or patients? Yeah, that's another thing that kind of links the clinic. It's in your mind. And I go to page 137, you guys. So if that's helpful, it's basically a four-phase method. And it really is based upon what I've observed for years in working with these, you know, complicated tick-borne and environmental toxic type of scenarios where people are so exhausted you know, and people have their adrenals are, are off their thyroids off their micronutrient deficient. Oftentimes we have so much leaky gut and in, you know, gut inflammation, we're not absorbing things. And some of the times, and, and actually quite a bit of the time I've seen scenarios where people, you, you know, it's like if they start on say detoxification support right away, or if they start on antimicrobials, whether pharmaceutical or herbal, that oftentimes it's, they crash, right? And we get MCAS, we get mast cell activation, we get other types of inflammation, we get herxing, all the different things that I know, you know, listeners know about. And one of the ways I have found that helps people so much more is actually starting very early on in the process, usually first thing with building the reserves up. So this means that oftentimes for people, before we go into a detox, before we go into an antimicrobial protocol, we're actually saying like, let's get thyroid in, you know, into fairly close to optimal range, maybe not totally optimal before we move on, but let's really build up the thyroid. Let's really build up the adrenal glands. Let's get DHEA high. Let's work on sex hormones. And essentially the way I look at this, you know, the way I help people try to understand this actions, these types of processes are energetically expensive to the body, meaning detox uses a lot of nutrients. You know, these, these enzymes that help that people talk about in phase one and phase two of the liver, for example, they use a lot of nutrients. We burn through a lot of B vitamins. We burn through a lot of vitamin C. We burn through a lot of different nutrients. And by building up stores that are oftentimes depleted ahead of time, we actually set somebody up for a better scenario of being able to detox more appropriately. So the first stage I usually guide people through at this point, and you know, of course, everybody's different and unique, but the most common thing that I do is really starting, I call it metabolic building, and it's really building up the body and anything we think about, like metabolism, like I said, thyroid, adrenal, sex hormones, micronutrients, mitochondria, lower inflammation, and more before we move on to the next step. So I'll pause because I just said a lot before I continue on the next step. So I think that's really helpful because I'm sure a lot of our listeners, when you're in the Lyme world, you're feeling super frustrated. And many times the idea is like, okay, you get diagnosed, you're dealing with a pathogen and you want to kill this pathogen to move forward. But like so many of us who have gone through this journey, um, 
yeah, that's not always how the body reacts. And if you do too much killing, um, or too many binders for toxins, you can actually feel, feel worse first. Uh, so it's really good to take a step back and look at the whole body and really make sure the body is ready to be more receptive to these other treatments down the road. So I love that you're looking at everything first, figuring out what the body really needs of, of supportive pieces so that it could be receptive to the treatments that you implement later on. Um, so I think that's really helpful and something that's key when you're going through the complex illness world. Um, what was going to be the second step that you mentioned? Well, just real quick, before I jump into that, one thing I want to make sure to say here is because I, so many people will come into my clinic, for example, be like, oh yeah, my doctor looked at thyroid. And I find that a lot of people in the Lyme and mold community get very, very educated in Borrelia and Bartonella and Babesia and mycotoxins, right? But then their doctor looked at TSH, a thigh, the most common thyroid hormone that is measured and their doctor said that it is normal. So the one thing before we move on to phase two, I just want to make sure everybody is aware of, because I do find that there is this huge knowledge base that everybody in this community has, but not always down to the intricate levels that just because just like with Lyme disease, just because if you got, you know, a Western blot run by conventional medicine and they're like, no, it's not Lyme. And, you know, you do more thorough investigative and more proper testing and work with a Lyme literate clinician, all of a sudden it's like, actually, this is Lyme disease. The same thing is true for thyroid and, and, you know, cortisol and DHEA. So just to make sure that everybody's on the same page with like, if you feel like you've ruled those things out around like, oh, my, your body isn't suffering that way. Make sure you're actually working with the clinician that just like with Lyme values is literate in how to interpret all these other values as well. So, and then moving on to phase two, phase two has lifestyle in my matrix and lifestyle is all the things that you can think of that would go here, right? So it's diet, it's movement, it's lymphatic work, it's mindset, but I put lifestyle actually in the treatment order after the buildup phase, because so many times I have found in this community, when people go into lifestyle too quickly and too early, if you don't have the stores and you're like making it from the bed to the bathroom is an impossible feat, you know, showing up for your appointment is really, really hard because of the level of fatigue and brain fog, right? If so, if you're in a position like that, it's really difficult to, to change anything lifestyle wise and, and do say self lymphatic massages or anything else. Cause you just don't have the energy, you know, in that scenario, in this example, people just don't have that energy store. So, you know, if you have the energy stores and you're like, oh yeah, I can do, you know, five minutes of self-lymphatic massage every day. And I can wander around and, you know, get five, at least five minutes of movement a day, just something we might do lifestyle a little bit earlier on, but I like to put it at phase two, just to not overwhelm people that are like, I, I can't like, you want me to do this extra thing? I can't even survive my day. So that's really why lifestyles in phase two. And I feel like the most, the two most important things that I see missing for people in this particular section are moving the lymphatic system and doing lymphatic, you know, drainage type of work, as well as doing the mindset work. And the thing I want to say about lymphatic drainage is a lot of people do like basic stuff, like dry skin brushing, a lot of people are doing and, uh, and doing like hot, cold types of, you know, contrast hydrotherapy. So I see people doing that and that stuff is helpful, 
but there's something different and something more powerful I find about lymphatic massage. And self-lymphatic massage, if you're on a tight budget, is something that absolutely helps. But doing actually a full lymphatic massage with a lymphatic therapist, somebody that's specialized in this particular type of massage, at least to teach you how to do it. You know, I do have videos that we've done and all that to teach people, but to have a professional actually touch you and say, this is how deep you want to go for this type of massage. It's not deep. It's like half pound of pressure. So to have somebody teach you, that's really important. And it's also, it's a missing piece that really, really helps with herxing and with MCAS and preparing the body. And then the second thing in the lifestyle, that's the most common thing to miss that I feel like is one of the crutch keys to preventing recurrence, to healing, but also preventing recurrence is to get people out of the sympathetic dominance to really work on the nervous system. Because the number the number one reason that I personally see, and I know there's people that have different opinions, but my professional opinion is the number one reason why Lyme recurs or people plateau and don't get well like that over that next hurdle, they make it to a level. And it's like, oh, I'm stuck at 70%. I can't get better is the, you know, is the, the nervous system. And we even see that adrenaline that we see when the nervous system is more in an adrenaline state, we even see that adrenaline helps with the formation of biofilms of Borrelia of Lyme disease. And when we also know that when, when biofilms occur, that it helps the cells of the Borrelia, it helps the bacteria to communicate better together. So we see this like direct path of like, oh, I'm in fight or flight. My nervous system's running this way. My, my, you know, the Borrelia then is communicating better. The Borrelia is then multiplying better. And so there's this very clear sense of fight or flight leads to this. So it's, it's, it's clear physiologically, you know, what's happening like from a mechanism standpoint inside the body, why stress is such a big deal. But of course, it's very, very hard when we're in these survival states, anybody with Lyme is going to be in survival. So naturally, most people are going to move to this fight or flight, which is the body trying to kick them, move them, help them survive. But it's almost this, it's almost this backfire type of scenario with the body where it goes into this fight or flight. And then we wind up, you know, having these recurrence and having more, a more difficult time getting out of the Lyme scenario. So that's why, you know, that's why the, in part, the book, it's called, it's not in your mind for many reasons. And one of them is because obviously that's what people hear a lot and we got to get you know, help everybody feel supported. But the other is to like also bring just like awareness to the mind and the importance of the mind in, in the healing process. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's really hard to heal if you're constantly in fight or flip fight, fight or flight and having a chronic illness and going through all of these like really misunderstood conditions and trying to navigate it um, is incredibly stressful. So we understand how people can get there and then also having inflammation uh, from toxins and pathogens that can create uh you know, anxiety symptoms, it's, it's very difficult to manage. Um, but if your, your system is always in constant fight or flight, then implementing certain supplements and certain treatments, oftentimes your, your body will kind of be like, Whoa, uh, even, even if it's good for you, it might just be too much for your system. So being able to regulate your nervous system is absolutely key. And I love that in your book, um, towards the end of the book, you're talking a lot about uh, your mind and how different ways to work through it. And one thing that I really resonated with myself and a lot of the clients that I work with dealing with tick-borne infections is when they wake up, they usually do like a body scan. 
And so like, imagine waking up and then the first thing you're thinking about is like, okay, what are my symptoms? Do I have a migraine? Am I like having neuropathy? But that's not the best way to wake up and kind of start your day. Um, it's, it's easy to do. And I used to do it too, but you gave certain tips and tricks of waking up and how to think about things to start your day and move forward. Can you tell us a little bit more of some of the tips and tricks to help your mindset move forward when you're dealing with a chronic illness? Yeah. One of the things I really pull from is the psychology concept called parts work. So parts work is really based upon, there's a lot of different parts of ourselves and they might all have different feelings and opinions. And, you know, the one example is like, oh, your friends are over, you know, very basic example, parts work, your friends are over, you're having a great time. You got to get up really early. You might have one part of yourself that's saying, oh my gosh, I never, I hardly ever get to socialize like this. I just want to hang out with my friends. And, you know, and there's that part and other parts, like I got to get my butt to bed because I got to be, you know, functioning tomorrow. Right. So it's very, very just broad. We all deal with parts work, whether you're in, you know, a chronic illness state or health, everybody has different parts of themselves that sometimes want different things at different times. Right. We obviously see this in children too, all the time. So one of the basic things that I think people can get stuck in is when they're doing the body scan, the brain can really hook on to, oh my gosh, my, my knees, my back, my head, my joints, my yacht, you know, and just going through the list. And that part of oneself that is truly suffering, that is truly a victim of a moldy place, of a tick, of whatever else bit and, and an impacted them, that part feels like a victim. That part really is a victim. Like that part got attacked. That part did not ask for that. It did not make any choice, you know, to get that. So it's really easy in doing that body scan for that part to feel like I'm angry, you know, and I'm, I'm pissed. Why did this happen to me? And so part of the exercises that I really talk about are allowing for other parts to actually have a voice too. And this is not just like this, you know, this law of attraction thing, nothing against that, but that's not what I'm saying here. I think that doesn't work very well in these sorts of scenarios because what we don't want to do, we don't want to get into this point where we were like telling that part that's already a victim of their, the circumstance. We don't want to tell that part that it's bad, right. Or that is wrong. Like, yeah, you should be angry. This is, the situation's horrible, you know? So that part has a right to be angry. So rather than pushing that part away and being like, hey, I'm just going to sit and like chant, like I'm healthy and I'm healthy and I'm healthy and well, rather than doing that, it's inviting other parts of ourselves to actually have a voice too. And when we actually allow other parts of ourselves to have a voice too, it can kind of break the state and snap somebody out of things. So it's, it's almost having, sometimes I call it having an internal board meeting. So, you know, waking up, notice yourself, do the scan, let yourself do the scan for a moment let that part have a voice, you know, today might be a exceptionally hard day, but then the idea is not getting stuck in that thought loop and letting that part be the only part of oneself that has a voice because all of that is true. And there's also part of you that if you're alive, there's part of you that is still fighting every day. There part of is part of you that has a will beyond belief. There's part of you that is so strong. There's all of these other parts that actually have not gotten in this example to speak as much. And so in a body scan example, it might look like this. You wake up, you allow yourself to body, you know, body scan. As soon as you catch yourself, you know, maybe wrap it up and say, hey, I'm going to have a one more minute. 
And then I'm going to allow another part of your myself to, to say something. And this is where the questions we ask become so important because whatever question you ask is the answer you're going to get. If, if anybody asks themselves a question around like what sucks in my life right now, if you're healthy, if you're well, if you're asking yourself that question, you're probably going to start looking for the things that are not good in life, right? So with parts work, the idea then is once you've done the scan, you've given yourself a moment, you said like, you have a right, you have a right, that part of myself to be frustrated, to be annoyed, to be all of these things. And what part of myself am I like, what's happening in my life that I'm really proud of? Is it the fact that you are fighting every day is the fact that you have a will that's stronger than so many people because of what you've been through. But we allow these other parts by asking these types of questions to actually begin to have more and more of a voice. And we allow them to become as the more we can ask these questions. Again, we're not pushing that other part away. We're just not getting stuck in it. So we start asking ourselves these other questions to get ourselves out of that. Because the, the problem is not the scan. The problem is the vicious cycle of the scan. So what we want to do is break that cycle so we can start moving into like, wow, oh my gosh, like I am the strongest person I know for waking up and getting out and like getting my kids to school when I can barely even stand. Like, holy cow, am I strong? Like those are the kind of things we can also be saying to ourselves. So we just start allowing more and more of those parts to come in. And you guys, this is a practice, right? So it's like what you might find is you do this, you do an exercise like this, and you you say something, you're proud of yourself. And like five minutes later, you're like, oh, but this sucks, right? So it's a practice. It's not like all of a sudden it's movement and, and you're, for most people, it's not like, oh, I'm starting to do this parts work and now this other part of me is never, you know, not going to be in charge anymore. It's a practice like anything else, but that's really, that's a huge component of this. Yeah, really working as a team with your body instead of being frustrated with your body, looking at what is your body, what can your body do, and what you can be proud of with your body and move forward with that. I think that's really important. Um, I had a question. So when I was when I was reading your book um, and and even just working with my clients, I I do a lot where um, you're focusing on mindset first to get your body more receptive to treatments. And then there are clients that are working on mindset and they're still having a hard time with treatments. And this is more of like the mast cell activation syndrome. Something that you mentioned in your book um, is different types of peptides. One of them is KPV. And I'd love to learn more about that because it seems like that can be a game changer when you've tried other things like chromalin and cotodafin and so many other mast cell stabilizers that really haven't moved the sword a little bit where KPV seems to be something that maybe we should be talking about more. Yeah. I'm really excited about KPV because I don't know about you, but frankly, I've been a little bit underwhelmed with the mast cell stabilizers in my practice. I have seen some people where they absolutely help. Right. So it's not to say that don't ever try them or anything like that, but I've seen a significant number of MCAS patients where you put them on a mast cell stabilizer and they actually have a mast cell reaction to, to the stabilizer, you know, to the mast cell stabilizer. So it's really important to have other options. And so I got, I started working with, um, with KPV in particular, when I was looking for a solution for somebody that really wanted to try VIP, Um, they tried a little bit, they were not, they reacted negatively to it. But from a VIP standpoint, oftentimes we talk about VIP, which is a peptide. 
uh, that it's, it works with MSH. It works with melanocyte stimulate, stimulating hormone, right? And so KPV as a peptide is a MSH. It's a melanocyte stimulating hormone analog. So in my mind, theoretically, okay, we can get to some of the same sort of processes that we do with, um, with VIP potentially with MSH. I mean, sorry, with, with KPV. So that was initially what got me interested in it. And the finding of what I've seen in my, my MCAS patients really just started with that curiosity of like, you know how it is with MCAS patients. It's like, we're constantly looking for the reacting to something and reacting, reacting. It's like, we got to find another way in. So I started uh, using this on just a few MCAS patients in the beginning, and then started really finding that I've had so many people that have not only not done well with MCAS stabilizers, but people that are like reacting to showers, right? People that are reacting to literally anything and they start being able to get KPV in. And so, and, and KPV I've seen to be that door. And I think it's just calming some of the inflammation enough where other treatments, then we can start using them and working And you guys. It's still really slow. And I'm doing a lot of intranasal or, um, throat sprays for KPV. Um, I'm also sometimes using it transdermally and doing it topically. So, you know, using different applicating methods for different people, trying different things, because sometimes people will react to one delivery system and not another. So know that there's different ways you can get that in. But it's a really exciting thing. I'm using it. The other peptide I am using quite a bit is BPC-157. I imagine you guys have talked about that one on the show because it's that one has a little bit more uh, press, I feel like, around it mm-hmm. than the KPV. But I'm actually finding like, like BPC-157 is great, but I'm actually finding from a MCAS, so from a true MCAS perspective, I'm finding less reactivity to KPV than for, from to BPC-100%. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so for those of you listening who are not super familiar with BPC 157, it's a peptide and it can help with, um, with really, uh, gut health. And then also now people are using it in in injections. So I've seen where people have had, like, instead of doing steroid injections for certain pain points, um, or joint points, they're actually doing, uh, BPC 157 injections to help heal that area and help with pain management. So it's really cool how peptides are getting out there and healing on a more natural level level. Um, but I've seen the same thing where I feel like if you give PPC 157 to someone with mast cells, sometimes it can actually um, overstimulate their immune system and it's a little too much, not with everybody, but with some people where introducing KPV first kind of sets the stage for their body to be acclimate to other treatments a little bit better. Well, another theory I have of what's happening there too with the BPC, and this is, this is theoretical, you guys. But BPC, because it does do such a good job of healing the intestinal tract, right? So it's so good with leaky gut. It's so good with intestinal inflammation. And so there's a curiosity of, are there intracellular parasites that are actually being pushed out that maybe were dormant and we, we heal the cells and we push the parasites out? Well, parasites really activate MCAS, right? So because they're so histamine inducing. And so that's a, this is just theory, but I, but I am curious about it because I do see what we, you know, what we're saying here, this huge reactivity. And I say this also, because I'm also seeing from a parasite perspective, I'm using more and more of this very um, controversial thing. I'm using more like ivermectin, daraprim, these types of drugs 
for, you know, not for Lyme, but for parasites like toxoplasma, right? So toxoplasma is a medication that is, or toxoplasma is a parasite that some of these other types of medications are being used for. And I'm seeing people like, like 10 days on these types of medications, very short time period. And all of a sudden we have brain symptoms going away, right? Like crazy brain fog. So it does make me wonder too, in the grand scheme of all of this, how much we are actually seeing with these types of um, situations, you know, hidden parasites that are just not being touched by other mechanisms. So I do kind of wonder with BP7, if that's BP7, 137, if that's part of the problem is that we're actually pushing out parasites into the intestinal tract. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. In And when you're looking into parasite treatment, when is that on the list? Because I know that if you do it too fast, yeah, you can have a lot of inflammation and it just kind of creates a whole storm. So we don't want to do that. But when is it when is it a good time to implement those types of treatments? I tend to do it last towards the end. And I do that because, you know, again, stage one is building, stage two is lifestyle, stage three is really detox. And I like to detox before I kill because. The problem is when we kill before we detox, when we, you know, kill parasites, we kill Lyme, we kill all these various things. When we do these things prior, what winds up happening is we wind up getting to a point where we have all of this die off and we wind up, if the liver's already backed up, if we already have phase one, phase two, phase three down regulation, meaning the liver is going slower. We have already a toxic backload. And then all of a sudden we kill and we bring more toxins into the system because of the die off of killing the microorganisms, we can really make somebody worse. So, you know, I, I find, as I think you kind of alluded to a little earlier in this conversation, that it's so common that when we get these, these tests back that show that we have these microbes in us, it's so common to be like, get them out of me, get them out of me, get them out of me. This is the problem. And all of that is so normal but I really work to teach people that if we do this too soon, not only is it probably not going to work, but it has a huge possibility of actually inflaming you more and making you worse and flaring MCAS and everything else. So I tend to do that much later, you know, the killing the parasites and, and all the other infections much later in the treatment process. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think that um, as you're going through this process, as you're really getting the building blocks for your body and creating a train as your body to get stronger, you're going to see that a lot of things have an easier time going in remission so that when you go to the stages of um, antimicrobial treatment, that you don't actually oftentimes have to do as much antimicrobial treatment than you originally thought, because a lot of things are a bit more stable now that your body's stronger. Yeah, I see that so much. And that's what we want to be, you know, very careful of because also, I mean, we talked about mindset earlier as a huge component of recurrence, but another huge component of recurrence I find is that the immune system has gotten so damaged. And oftentimes that comes from the microbiome being so damaged because of so many, you know, drugs and, and by, and, and by drugs, I mean, I'm saying, actually, I shouldn't use the word drugs because I mean both pharmaceutical and herbal. I don't mean just pharmaceutical. I mean, anything that we're giving that's a strong microbial killer can potentially damage the microbiome. Like, you know, oil of oregano is one of my favorites from a microbial standpoint, but you're going to get microbiome damage with that. Right. So there are, there are herbs that are definitely more, you know, safer than others for sure for that. 
but it is a concern that when we're you were killing the bad guys, what are we doing to some of our natural good guys, our natural good bacteria? And since our good bacteria, you know, as a natural path, like we focus so much on these good bacteria because one of the things they do is they provide our immune system support, a huge amount of our immune support. So if we destroyed them, it's so easy for the persister cells, the dormant types of form of Lyme disease to flare later on be- because of that scenario. So on page four, uh, 46 in your book, you talk a little bit about persister cells. And for those of uh, us listening who are uncertain about persister cells, can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah. Persister cells are super interesting. Like they, they are a fascinating part of Lyme, of Borrelia, as well as a few other um, components of things. So essentially your basic biology review, microbiology review, or, or lesson for those of you that never really studied microbiology is that essentially bacteria have circular DNA in the circular DNA is called a plasmid is they are, they're actually able to share and exchange information. So if we have, for example, we have a bacteria over here and we have a bacteria over there and they meet each other. And one of them is resistant to it, to a, um, antibiotic they will actually share a piece of their DNA. And there now you have two antibiotic resistant bacteria. But the interesting thing that changes on a, on a cellular level, on a bacterial level with the DNA is that there's no remnant of the original bacteria left. So it looks basically the DNA has actually changed. Okay. So hopefully everybody is still with me. So essentially to sum that up, we have when we have antibiotic resistance, what has happened is a bacteria has new DNA and there's no DNA that is of the remnant bacteria left. Persister cells, one of the things that defines a persister cell is it can meet other bacteria that have this DNA where it's normally exchanged and they can interact with it, but they actually retain their original DNA. They don't, they don't actually form this new DNA. So we know tuberculosis does this, certain forms of E. coli are, are seen in the research that do this and Borrelia. There may be others, that's what I've seen. And so essentially because of that, these are those highly, 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 highly antibiotic resistance. And so what you'll see sometimes like, you know, in, in, in laboratory studies is that it'll look like all the lime is gone on like a Petri dish, like on a culture cell. It'll look like everything is gone. And then weeks go by. And then all of a sudden it starts growing again. You didn't even realize it's there, right? So these that's what these persister cells are. And the problem is, if you think about this, how this actually operates inside of a human body is what does that look like inside of a human? It looks like you feel better. It looks like the antibiotics or whatever medication you use worked. And all, so it feels like, oh my gosh, I'm getting a hold of this. And then you crash, right? And it's like, what's going on? It's like, I'm a yo-yo, I'm getting better. I'm making progress. Crap, I'm crashing again. And that's not only a physical nightmare, it's a psychological nightmare. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what these persister cells are. And that's why using different types of techniques we have to get to those persister cells is super important. It's another vicious cycle we got to get out of. What are some of the treatments that you'd recommend specifically for persister cells? There's two huge things to, to focus on. And one is pulsation therapy. So pulsation therapy is when you do like the most classic thing I do at this point is five days on two days off in part, because it's easy for people to do by on, I mean, you're on your antimicrobials, 
And by off, I mean, you're off your antimicrobials for treating Borrelia. So you do five days where you're like doing your treatment, two days off, five days doing your treatment, two days off. So that can really help. And um, one of the things it's doing is it's preventing, you know, that line from going into dormancy by pulsing like that. The, the herb that I use the most for it, and it's because it outperforms even pharmaceuticals in, in research study is cryptolepis. And, you know, the study that came out on cryptolepis a couple of years ago is really mind boggling how well it performs. You know, it, it exceeds other herbs and it exceeds antimicrobials for getting to these persisters. So I really feel at this point, you know, until we have, you know, maybe something stronger that we learn in research at the point that we're you know, at in 2023 here is that these persist, the, this cryptolepis is almost essential as a, as a part of people's treatment at some point. It might be, you know, it's like, it doesn't have to be in the beginning. If you're reacting, you're herxing, if you're, if it's causing problems, but if, if it's not something you use initially, even when you're feeling well, like if you're like strong, you're like, oh, I'm not reacting to anything anymore. I would definitely encourage you to even do crypto at that point, because what we're really trying to do is get to those persisters. So you stay strong and you don't have this recurrence relapse thing that we can sometimes have it happen. Yeah, that is definitely one of my favorite herbals as well. However, for listeners, it is probably the most potent herbal that I use. Um, so you really want to make sure that your body's in the right stage and your body is strong enough to handle it and that you definitely want to go low and slow um, and that you have detox therapies on board because when those persister cells come out, then we really want to make sure your body can handle it. Yeah. And that's also why like in my, you know, four phase metric, Crypto is in phase four. It's not in phase one, two, and three. So we're very in alignment there. Yeah, 100%. Um, so we talked a little bit about the peptide treatments and how you can actually take BBC 157 and help with different um, areas to feel better and tissues. And in your book on page 226, you talk about platelet-rich plasma injections. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and how that helps the body heal? Yeah. So platelet-rich plasma, otherwise known as PRP is pretty simple. It's where somebody will draw your blood and they basically, they use a centrifuge to concentrate the platelets. The platelets are where you have growth factors, where you have these, these basically molecules that signal repair in the body. And so because it's your own, you know, it's like, obviously we, we can react to anything with these scenarios we're talking about. But I do find that because it's people's own blood, it's a very cool therapy where sometimes we can react less. It's just another way in. Of course, we have to be careful with MCAS. Sometimes I see MCAS people react to being stuck by a needle really bad. And this is an injection, right? So, you know, take that into consideration. But essentially what we're doing is we're concentrating the molecules in your body that are about growth that are about repair, that are about regeneration. And then when we use this in these areas, a lot of times it's done in joint spaces, for example. So kind of idea when we know that Borrelia, Lyme disease, loves hyaluronic acid, loves to live in the joints because of all that hyaluronic acid there. And when we inject PRP into those areas, like what's, you know, what's technically happening is you're signaling the body that there's a problem there. So it's like high alert, oh, bring the body's signaling systems to this area where we actually have more of the Borrelia likely. And so it's just another treatment that I like people to be aware of. It's not, I wouldn't say it's one of the more common things I have people do, but it is in my wheelhouse because I have seen people be really, that are really stuck. And they're like, I don't know what else to do. It, I have seen it really get some people unstuck. 
Okay. Yeah. I hadn't heard of that treatment before. And it's definitely when I looked at it in your book, I was like, Ooh, this seems really interesting. So it's good to put out there. Um, something that you also talk about in your book is MRP2 and BSEP proteins. And can you explain a little bit more of what that is? Because you, you had talked about opening up drainage pathways and focusing on detox, but a lot of people don't really understand the logistics with detox and that there's different phases. So sometimes you take milk thistle, but that only gets at phase one. So if you don't have your other areas areas uh, looked into and supported, then it can actually kind of just like stop and, and not completely get the toxins through. So looking into, into these other proteins can be helpful. And you did a great job on your book of going over it. Yeah, I'll touch a little bit on it here. I do want to refer everybody back to episode 202, my first interview, because we did go pretty far into detail in that interview on that but just high level, because it is so important. So, you know, to take just a quick 45 seconds to high level it, essentially when the toxins are broken down in the liver, they have to be transported out of the liver. And if they're not transported out, they actually go backwards into the bloodstream and back into circulation, essentially. So these proteins that you're mentioning, the BSEP and the MRP2 are just proteins that we need to make help work better because they transport the protein or the toxins out once they're broken down. And we go way into mechanism of like way more detail in that last episode. So make sure you go back and listen to that if you, you know, want to dive deeper in there. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, okay. The other question that I had is, so you've written um, another book and you've added to it. Uh, your first book is Use Your Mind and now it's it's not in your mind. Can you go over some of the differences with the new edition? Yeah. And the new edition, I focus a lot more. There's, there's two huge kind of things I focus a lot more. One we've like started covering already. It's the four point matrix, right? So I spent a lot more time in this book really talking about this buildup phase of before we do the detox. And I do that just because of what we've you know already said here around, it can be so exciting to be like, oh my gosh, I finally know what's going on. It's Lyme disease and like, it's scary, but it's also great to finally know, you know, that complicated positive test result. And so I find so many people get so excited about treatment of that, that I wanted to spend a lot more time emphasizing these earlier phases. So I go a lot more detail into that. I also spend a lot more time going, drawing out more details of my protocol. And the third, the bigger second thing, kind of three is what it's turning into now is, is really changing the, the stories I tell. So I, like I said in the beginning, even with the change of you know my practice and and that sort of thing in this new practice, a huge component of that has been I want people to really begin to understand that they and make sure the mental it's not in your mind, but your mind is like the most powerful tool that that everybody is you're the hero, you know, you're the one that's surviving this. You're the one that's doing the work, and you're actually the one that's going to get you out of this. Like as clinicians, we're guides, we're your coach, we're your mentors. You know, sometimes it even, you know, can we can almost be like a friendship, like guiding you through this. Like it's so intimate and personal. And yet at the end of the day, you're the one that has to make the decision to take the supplements, to do the lifestyle changes, to do the pharmaceuticals, to do the peptides, whatever you're doing. So I focus so many more, so many more stories. It's less like, I really liked what Rich said offline around the first book was a memoir. And this book is le way less of my story. I talk a little bit about that, but it's way less of my story. And it's really more oriented to hope, to telling stories of other people, how they survive, what their story is, 
because I really wanted that to be more of the emphasis and to, you know, make it less about me, frankly. Yep. That makes sense. Um, so not only did you make changes in your book, but you also made changes in your practice. It seems like you made it to be more specialized. You have, um, my Lyme doctor, and then you also have another practice, my libido doc. And why did you decide to create that practice? And does it interrelate with Lyme disease at all as well? Yeah. So to be clear for everybody, so it's my Lyme doc and my libido doc. So very easy to remember them both. And so essentially one of the things that started happening as far as in my Lyme practice was realizing how many relationships suffered and relationships suffered, you know, with like, I feel like Lyme disease, mold illness, they don't, if you're in relationship, you have a family, this doesn't happen to an individual. Like there's an individual that suffers typically more than everybody else. But it happens to the partner. It happens to the family too, because they're the, they turn into caretakers. They turn they, you know, sometimes feel like you know kids can feel like their mom and dad or dad are not able to participate in life as much. And so, really, is like a it happens to the community as well. And so, in the context of really you know looking at that, one of the things I started realizing is yes, there's this mental component that relationships have have failed, but also almost everybody has a loss of libido. And that also contributes to, to that connectedness to a partner, right? You know, sex drive goes down, people start losing their sense of self, body image changes, sense of self changes. And all of a sudden there's all of these different disconnects. So one of the things that started happening is once people started feeling well, then they're ready to like put energy back into the relationship. Then they're ready to like get that last like 3% or grow, which oftentimes is their libido, which helps with their connections, which helps with, I really think a healthy, very healthy sex life. Now what we know more and more with research with oxytocin, which is released when we hold each other, right? Which is released when we orgasm, which is released throughout the sexual process. Now we know it balances stress. Now we know it balances dopamine. Now we know it even, there's even studies showing it improves body image. It improves um, weight even. It can balance blood sugar. There's all these things that this can, this, you know, this beautiful act between humans can do. And so I've just been feeling more and more like we've gotten so far in functional medicine when people get well of focusing on diet, of focusing on movement. And now, you know, sitting is the new smoking. And so we're focusing on all these things, these foundational things, but it's, it's one of the missing things I think still in, in true holistic health is looking at libido and looking at a healthy sex drive because of all that gets balanced in our life when this part is healthy. So it really began in part. There's a lot of ways it began. It's like, you know, of course, through my own journey, like, like so much of what we do, but it's, it's really been through a true observation of, of people in, you know, this community of like, oh, okay, now we're well, now we can focus on taking it to that true next level. So that's really what my libido doc is about. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've definitely seen that there's a huge correlation um, with sex hormones and tick-borne infections. So it's good that you're so specialized in that and really are able to help people move forward in that direction. Yeah, it's really great. And it's really great to be able to even talk to people about healthy communication and all the other parts that go into, you know, safety and, and all these things that really get destroyed oftentimes when people have chronic illness, you know, it's like, you know, the Lyme rage, the Babesia rage, these things are so real, right? And that can lead to these patterns, even if somebody has never had a pattern, 
because it's so much um, like emotional and neuro nervous system dysregulation, it can really then lead to communication patterns that are not beneficial for the relationship and that impact bedroom and intimacy life and all of that. So it's the fun part too, has been bringing it back to say, okay, well, how, now that the nervous system's repaired, how do we begin to have healthy communication and healthy conversations about this topic, sexuality, which has been so taboo in society. So Mm -hmm. I really think it's an opportunity too, for people to not only begin to heal their body and their mind throughout this, but then to heal like relationship and communication and, and community impacts that happen with this disease process. Yeah, I, I agree. And relationships can definitely be difficult when you're navigating a chronic illness, especially something like tick-borne infections, which can be controversial and very misunderstood. And then also biotoxin illness, where um, that's even more confusing, especially if you're in a relationship living with someone, and then, you know, you feel a lot of symptoms from the home that may be giving you a mold exposure and your partner doesn't have any symptoms and just trying to wrap your head around that and move forward together in the relationship. Can you tell us a little bit about how you work with people dealing with biotoxin illness, um, logistics with treatment, testing, all of, all of that thing, all of that stuff? Yeah, it's really very similar to Lyme disease. You know, it's really very similar to that. So it's still, you know, the matrix is still the same. So it's still starting with building people up with lifestyle, with detox, with then the microbe component of things. The, you know, the thing that's always the biggest thing that you also alluded to here with biotoxin illness is the fact that oftentimes we have confusion because some people are in, say, a house that's moldy that where there's biotoxins there in the air and other people are, you know, some people are sick, some people are not. So I'm certainly in a similar camp as most people that are working with mold and biotoxins of it's difficult, if not impossible, if you're living in a severely moldy place to get well until you're in a safe place every once in a while. And this is extremely rare. You guys, this is like 0.5% of my patient population, but I do have people that come in and they're like, there's just, there's just no other option. Like I have to find a way of. I can't remediate. I can't move like either. We're going to have to find something to make me tolerate it, or I'm just going to have to give up. Like they don't have any options. Right. So every Mm -hmm. once in a while, you know, that comes up. And so I'm very honest with people, you know, around, like, I don't see this work basically hardly ever, but I'm happy to try some things. And very, again, I want to be very transparent and clear about this. So nobody is like misunderstanding this, that Every once in a while, I have somebody that can make improvements, not total wellness, but like, wow, my brain's working 50% better and I have way more energy again, not hundred percent energy, still have other problems, right? So it's not totally eliminating things, but I have seen in extremely rare cases where people can actually make some level of progress, but the, for most people, for 99% of people, getting them into it, you know, an environment that's safe is really important. And the other thing I would say is, you know, it's always like the load thing. So I'm really a big fan. Um, I should probably become an affiliate if that offers, if that exists, but I make no money on saying this, you guys, for this app, it's called Yucca, Y-U-K-A. And if you guys don't know about this app, it's so, so, so cool. You put it on your phone and basically you scan. It's just, it's like the scanning app 
and you can scan anything. You can scan anything around your home that's like a cleaning product, a, a food, a whatever, whatever, anything that has a barcode, you can basically scan. And I've not yet found something that I have personally scanned that's not in their system. So it's very well developed. And it'll give you a rating from zero to 100. 100 is really good. It's very clean. Zero is not clean. And then it will list all the different um, chemicals that could be in there. And, you know, if it gives you a 50 out of 100 rating, it'll say, oh, because it's XYZ chemical and it'll give you information about the chemical. And one of the greatest things about this product or this app is I've learned that there's not like a line, like we, you know, you go to the store and you're like, oh, it's a clean line. It's a natural line. And there can be, there can be products within a, the same line that will rate a seven out of a hundred, very bad. And then like you scan another, another product over and it's a 93 and you can go through and it's like, oh, it's this one ingredient. And they put it in that product and everything else is really clean, but there might be one ingredient that's really, really, really toxic. And so that's something that in, you know, biotoxin type of communities I'm using quite a bit because it's another way of saying, okay, well, it's not going to solve every problem here, but it's just an easy way when we're dealing with load and there's so much load, right? There's so many chemicals going in the body can't deal with. So we can start to take things out that we can control. Like if you can't move right away, remediate right away, there's other things you can control. And so that's another thing. Now, I would also caution you if you're listening to this, that I, one of the things that can happen is it can, you can hear this and be like, okay, I have to start scanning everything immediately. And then you can go through your house and be like, oh my gosh, I have to replace so many things. And so an easy way of doing this, especially when you're not feeling well, get the app and just every time you buy a new product, scan it then, whatever you're going to buy. You know, so it's like you need to replace mascara, you need to replace dish soap, you need to replace whatever. And you just start one product at a time. Every time you run out of something, you need to replace it. That's when you check. And that can be a very less overwhelming way than to be like hearing something this and be like, I have to replace everything immediately. And then you, you know, you throw things away and there's that whole um, conundrum for people as well. Yeah. So I I've used EWG on their site. You can put in certain products and it'll give you a grade, but then they also don't have a lot of products. I have not heard of Yucca. It's Y-U-C-A. Is that correct? Y-U-K-A. Y-U-K-A. Okay. Yeah. That's great to know about. Um, creating an environment that's more conducive to moving forward and having less products that are toxic is, is going to be super helpful when you're dealing with inflammation, because it's just going to be adding less inflammation to your system. So I love that. Any other recommendations, um, or even like testing that you like to do when you're working with people navigating this, do you like go into ERMI testing and hurts me too testing, um, for the home and then even the body, do you like to test like mycotoxins and SERS biomarkers? Yeah, I, I use Ermi more than Hurts Me these days just because I love, like Hurts Me is cheaper. Hurts Me does a great job of like a, a level of things, but I have seen situations where people's Hurts Me's are fine and their house is making them sick and the Ermi's positive. So sometimes I'll use Ermi as a way of trying to keep things as cost contained, but I, I've tended to go more for the Ermi for home testing. The other thing I like, everybody to just be, I've said this a bazillion times. I'm sure other people will say this, have said this too. So I will only say this for 15 seconds, which is 
Not every mold inspector is out the same. In fact, a certification means almost nothing in the mold inspection world. It just means they train in some methodology. It doesn't mean they know anything about biotoxins and how to find them. So you can't just go online and be like, oh, this person's like certified and they're comparing air in the home to air outside and it's fine. So you're good. No, you need, you need somebody that's more of a professional than that. But the ERMI dust test is a really good intro dust test. So I do do that. I used to do a lot more with the SIRS kind of biomarkers. I've really gotten away from that at this point, not saying I don't ever do them. So, you know, these are things like our MSH, like our TGF beta one, our MMP nine. And I do a lot more with urinary mycotoxins at this point. And the reason I really like the urinary mycotoxins is it's a lot more specific for mold, right? Because some of those SERS biomarkers, it's like, they're great to track progress and see inflammation change and to see that, you know, ADH has improved and people are properly absorbing and excreting their water and electro. There's, there's a lot of good things about that. There's a lot of good things about those biomarkers, but they're not really telling us that it's truly a mold problem. And the other thing I feel like is very important to say is there are a lot of people that really are concerned that these urinary mycotoxins are only like found in food. There's like research out there that's there's food does not change these levels. I've talked to practitioners. Yeah. I've talked to other practitioners who've done like pre and post testing where they've done like, okay, they give somebody a urinary mycotoxin test. They see what their levels are at. They put them on really, really low mycotoxin diets, see where they're at, no change. And I've also talked to practitioners that have tested the opposite, urinary mycotoxins, high food mycotoxin diets. You know, and I say that in air quotes for those of you, because since, since this isn't visual and then retest and also no change. So yeah, some of these mycotoxins may be found in food. There's definitely research that says that, but from the standpoint of that's what's actually driving these levels high, it just doesn't hold up. And it sounds like you agree. It just doesn't hold up clinically. So 100%. Yeah. So that's really important to say. And, and yeah, so I do do all of those. I will do, you know, total talks environment or, or vibrant wellness lab company that I just love. I don't make money for saying this either. I just think they're the best and they have a total talks a profile that goes through mycotoxins, that goes through things like glyphosate, that goes through a ton of pesticides, herbicides, and a lot of other things. So that's another thing to look at. Those types of things are just important from a total body burden, but you can also learn things about that. For example, if you have certain things in your body, like if you have, say, a high level of glyphosate in your body and you're like, you're not eating GMO, you're not eating wheat that's used, you know, where glyphosate's used in the drying process and you find high levels of glyphosate, for example, then you know that you're one, you can do things to target glyphosates more particular, you know, in your eradication process as well. Um, so you brought up a lot of really great points. You brought up ERMI test. And for those of you listening who are unfamiliar, um, basically an ERMI test will test mold spores. So you, you take a, you can do either a vacuum or a Swiffer and you get a dust sample and then you send it in. And I think it's like 35 or 36 different types of mold spores. Um, and looking at the different types are, that are in it will give you a clue of if there are certain mold spores that are more dangerous than others and at what level they're at. 
And then doing different tests on your body, like a mold mycotoxin test shows that so mold spores are in our home and they create mycotoxins, which is what we breathe in and that what we can test inside our body. And there's actually charts where you can um, look at the mold spores in your home and the mycotoxins in your body. And if it's a present exposure, it's going to align. So like aspergillus creates ochre toxin. So you might have high levels of ochre toxin in your system. And then in Dr. Mueller's book, she actually has a page that goes into the different types of mycotoxins and the different types of binders that are very effective for those mycotoxins. Um, and there's a lot of different conventional products like Wellcall and cholestyramine, which can be helpful, but sometimes they don't get at all of the different uh, mycotoxins that some natural ones uh, will, that have many different types of natural binding agents. So you're going to get multiple different types of mycotoxins so that you don't have to be on tons of different supplements, but um, you're able to get a bunch of them out um, all in one supplement. So it's also just looking into what mycotoxins you have and the best way to get them out. Uh, that's going to work with your body. Yeah. And that's on page 256. You guys, what she's talking about for anybody that just loves the quick reference. Um, you, that's how you can find that, that cheat sheet on binders and mycotoxins. And the other thing I want to say that I think is really important here is cholestyramine. Like there's studies that are showing that cholestyramine will array erode to like teeth. Like they actually will cause, it will cause tooth decay. It'll erode tooth enamel. And we now see there's just like so much of a correlation, right? We know in research between oral health and our body health, right? So it's like, that's just becoming more and more, you know, aware, I feel like in medicine of what's happening in the oral cavity actually can affect our entire body. And cholestyramine, it's not that I've never used it, right? Sometimes if other things are not working, we have to think about like, the lesser of two evils to get things out. And we work to protect the teeth and do good oral hygiene and use oral probiotics to help, you know, keep everything strong. But I, you know, I really like to emphasize like, like things are not always just because it's like the most popular thing you sometimes, and there's all everybody's talking about. And like, it's like cholestyramine is a really strong binder. It's a really, really, it, it is from a binding perspective, really good. But if we look at other things, it's just a, you know, it's just a consideration around what other things could it be damaging and making sure that that is considered in your process of whether or not this is a medication you want to use. Like I said, sometimes it, sometimes it might make sense, but it is good to know that it does erode, erode teeth and, and it can, you know, erode enamel and that should be used and that knowledge should be used and considered in your process around deciding if that's the right treatment for you. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then looking into the mold mycotoxin piece, a lot of times it can really affect your mitochondria. Um, what are certain tools that you help people in supporting their mitochondria? So there's definitely, I mean, some of the problem I think with the mitochondria really comes down to making sure that we're not damaging the mitochondria. So that's a huge portion of it, right? So it's like, you know, people talk about mitochondrial dysfunction all the time. Well, why is the mitochondria? you know, dysfunction. Well, it's dysfunction because all of, all of these things, right? So it's like, we want to get rid of the toxins and the infections, all of these things that are damaging the mitochondria. And that will also help the mitochondria. And when the mitochondria has been damaged, we do in the mitochondria, just for everybody to remind them, that's the powerhouse of the cell. That's a part of the cell that is creating all the energy. 
when the cell has energy, all of our cells have energy, cells can do their function better, right? So that's why the mitochondria are so important is cells all over the body. Every cell has this mitochondria. The mitochondria need to work well for the cell, whether it's a liver cell or a brain cell or a bicep cell or whatever, the, the mitochondria help that cell to do the job of that particular cell. So, you know, so there's some basic nutrients we can certainly use, like carnitine really works well, NAC works well, ALA work well, CoQ10 work well. So oftentimes we'll use it. That's kind of a four, a mitochondrial four pack I talk about in my book. That's really, you know, beneficial. A lot of people use NAD and do things like IV NAD, which can, you know, can work. We also need to be careful about the impact of NAC or of NAD on methylation and the methylation um, processes. So it's NAD IV is something to consider. And people ask me about that one all the time. And I do see some people do really well with it. I just think it needs to be used cautiously. Yep. I, I completely agree. Um, so we talked about tick-borne infections, mold, mycotoxins, libido, uh, mindset. Was there anything else that you wanted to put out there and let our listeners hear or any, um, last words of wisdom? Yeah. I mean, the other thing I would just say, and I think the thing to bring it back to is the thing that I think really is the easiest to fall away from. And it's really the nervous system. We've got to get the nervous system sending out these signals. So we, you know, we talked about that in the body scan. I tell people that I don't really care much if you're doing visualization or meditation or brain retraining exercises, like, you know, hack the mind kind of stuff. We talked about a little offline um, that I use in my practice or breath work. You know, I don't really care exactly what it is as long as it's regular and as long as it's really designed to repair the nervous system. So my my favorite breath work activity these days has been four, seven, eight breathing. And that's when you breathe in for four, you hold for seven, you breathe out for eight, and there's no hold after the exhale. You just breathe in for four again. But it's super easy. And I find because oftentimes when we have biotoxin illness, Lyme disease, and we have, you know, oftentimes people have shortness of breath and, and you know, post-exertional malaise where you're tired after exercise or movement at all, uh, that, that, that holding can be really challenging for people, right? So what I like about 478 for this community is there's no hold after the exhale, so there's not that like air hunger thing that's happening because you're holding your breath after an exhale and you already have air hunger. So it's fairly, I found this as a fairly easy exercise. Every once in a while I've had people that they have to, you know, cut down that middle, that seven, you know, seven second hold a little bit and that's fine. But I found it's a fairly easy one for people in this community to do very well. And it's so good about the, you know, getting the, the parasympathetic, that healing part of our our um, nervous system working well. The other thing, and this is something that my amazing breathwork teacher, Callie, who's out in Costa Rica taught me that I think is so, so, so important is oftentimes when starting a new practice like this, it's very important to do something for 10 minutes and 10 minutes at a time. Even if you, if you can't commit to that every day, if you can, that's better, but at least to do 10 minutes a day, as much as possible in the beginning, because what we're doing is we're getting your mind oriented to oh, I do this and I notice something because this is because you can still get what I think is important to differentiate here is you can still get benefit with some of these practices when you're doing short amounts of time. So if you have one minute to do 
a positive thinking exercise, if you have one minute to do a visualization, if you have one minute to do a breathwork activity, do that. All of that is training your nervous system. Don't let your short amount of time prevent you from doing that. But as much as possible, get in a longer session, a 10-minute-ish session, because that's usually the amount of time to notice the change. And if you notice the change, you're going to be more likely motivated to come back to do it again and again. And it really is this regularity. And I just, I really want to end with this because I feel like it's, we do all of this great work on the body and we do all of this great work, but I feel like it's probably the single most important thing to prevent recurrence and to keep people well is getting the out of the vicious cycle of the mind that just happens naturally to, you know, most of us that have gone through chronic disease. Dr. Mueller, one of the, one of the, reasons I think folks have so many challenges with their mindset when they're dealing with this diabolical disease, I'm quoting Dr. Alan McDonald, um, is that it it just steals so much from us, right? And one of the things that we're really excited about with you is that you are very tastefully and professionally dealing with the intimacy piece in a way that no one else has. Uh, and one of the things that I, I'm really excited to share with our listeners is that you've decided as part of your, you know, your, your multifaceted creativity, uh, you're starting a podcast and you're starting a podcast in the space where no one else is right now. So can you share with our listeners, um, you know, what you're going to be doing with your podcast and when you're going to be releasing the podcast? Yeah, the podcast is called the Libido Lounge. I'm really, really excited about this, you guys. And it's going to be launching by the time this launches, it should be out. So basically it's going to be this, this fall is when it's coming out fall of 2023. And essentially that what I'm really creating is a space where we can openly talk and people can ask questions and get these libido questions answered. Anything from how do I talk to my husband? How do I talk to my partner about sex? How do I, what is like, what is a normal hormone test? You know, how do I go try something novel with my partner that I've been married to for 40 years, right? Because so much gets lost. And so it's really, you know, really designed to create a safe space and to do this in a way that is, you know, sexy and provocative, but also classy, you know, also really speaking to people that like are really wanting to have these kind of conversations that are taboo, but, and do it in a very, you know, also professional and classy and well put together way. So I'm really excited about it. It'll, when it launches, it's going to be the first series we're doing is just, we'll just be me kind of introducing a bunch of topics. And then I already have guests lined up that we're working on getting on to talk about all sorts of things. And so if you guys have anything, you know, as this launches, um, where you're like, oh, this would be a super helpful topic. You know, my goal with this is really, really to serve, you know, my audience. So you can find me at my libido doc for that and just shoot me over an email there about any, you know, any kind of conversations that you feel like would really be valuable to you in that space. Thank you for sharing that. And I can't think of anyone better suited for tastefully dealing with these very important topics that are certainly having an impact on us in so many different ways. So, uh, and I, and I want our folks to know that Matt and I will be doing everything we can to keep people informed about this new podcast and to assist you in any way we can to help you to launch it. So thank you so much, Dr. Mueller, for coming on. And Michelle, thank you so much for being kind enough to uh, to co-host for me and with me. And really, I should say for me, because you you carried you carried me again, Michelle, through, uh, you know, a very high level conversation. And I think folks are really going to benefit from, you know, this interview in a way that uh, is not duplicative of what we had talked about before. So I can't thank the two of you enough for taking time out of your really busy schedules and, and sharing all this 
brilliant information with the folks here at Tech Bootcamp. Thanks so much for having me. I love co-hosting at Tech Bootcamp. You always have like great information and create such great awareness. And I love meeting new doctors like Dr. Mueller and getting to know her and all that she has to share as well. Yeah, thank you both. It's been a pleasure. And I just want to make sure everybody also knows that I do have a offer for everybody. And we can put this in the show notes, I assume, where you can get my book for free. You just pay shipping and handling. So a special link for that we can put in the show notes, right? I assume. Yeah, we'll okay. be happy to do that. But why don't, why don't you orally tell folks how they can get it as well? And we will also add it to the show notes. And, and, and quite frankly, we'd like to add it also to your description. So folks, we, I did share with you all at the beginning of the podcast, we have a lengthy description on our doctor's page for Dr. Mueller. Uh, and we'll add the, the book and the offer to, um, to not only our show notes of this podcast, but also to Dr. Mueller's description on our doctor's page. It's super easy. It's just mylimedoc.com forward slash heal. And that's where you'll find it. Well, thank you, Dr. Mueller. And thank you all. Bye, everybody.